Welcome back to the second episode in our new series of audio briefings looking at legal and regulatory developments from a corporate law perspective. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Suzanne Carney and I'm joined today by my colleague Ashling Carey. We are both professional support lawyers in the corporate and M&A department at Arthur Cox. And we are joined by Tom Courtney, a partner here at Arthur Cox, who many of you will be familiar with from your bookshelves as the author of The Law of Companies, regarded as the leading text on company law in Ireland. Tom also chaired the Company Law Review Group for 18 years, and this was the group who recommended the structure and content of what is now the Companies Act 2014. Tom is going to join us going forward as we discuss key aspects of company law in a back-to-basics format. Tom, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Hello, it's nice to join you. In this episode, we will cover some of the recent developments from a company law, corporate governance and equity capital markets perspective over the past few weeks. But first, our back to basics topic of today is directors' conflicts of interest. And we'll be discussing with Tom what this means for companies and their boards. Tom, most people will be aware that company directors have a duty to avoid a conflict of interest. But perhaps you might begin by explaining where this duty arises. Ashling, the duty of directors to avoid conflicts of interest has its origins in the common law and equitable strictures governing fiduciaries. The Companies Act 2014 codified the duty to avoid conflicts and the duty is now set out in Section 228 1F of the Companies Act 2014. This duty to avoid a conflict applies unless the director is released from that duty by the company's constitution or by a shareholder resolution. The statutory duty of directors is to avoid conflicts between their duties to the company, for example, to act in its interests, and their other interests, which will include their personal interests. So as you can see, it's a very broad and far-reaching duty. So Tom, you mentioned the origins of the duty are in company law rules and equitable principles. So this is far from being a new duty. Yes, Suzanne, that's correct. In the 1896 case of Bray and Ford, it was said that it was an inflexible rule of equity that a person in a fiduciary position cannot put himself in a position where his interests and his duty conflict. The no conflicts duty is therefore linked to other fiduciary duties, for example, to act in the interests of the company, to exercise an independent judgment and not to misuse the company's property, information or opportunities. Directors must avoid situations where their ability to discharge those other duties, for example, to act in the best interests of the company, might be compromised by reason of their own interests. In a way, in short, the no conflicts rule simply recognises human nature and the degree of control directors have in taking decisions for companies. So in practical terms, the duty is quite blunt and there is no need to establish an element of personal profit for the director in order for a conflict to arise. Yes, that's correct, Ashling. Traditionally, no conflicts and no profits were seen as distinct but closely allied duties, but they were often merged in practice. Case law tended to focus on the no profit side as there are very few cases which concern conflicts exclusively. The reason is that Failing to avoid a conflict can be seen as an incohate breach of duty. The breach is yet to happen, but when it does happen, the focus will be on the actual breach rather than on the failure to avoid the conflict which gave rise to the breach. This is seen in the leading case of Regal Hastings and Gulliver, which is a classic example of the no profit rule, since the company was caused no damage and actually benefit 
although the directors did not avoid the conflict of interest. The pure no-profit rule is sometimes referred to as being a dog-in-the-manger policy, as it prevents a director from benefiting, even though the company would not itself benefit. Tom, is the no-profit rule part of Section 2281F? Well, Suzanne, the answer is yes and no. We have seen the segregation of no-conflict, no-profit in Ireland. The no-conflict duty is retained in Section 2281F, but the no-profit rule has been refined so that directors who do profit from their position will only breach their duty where they breach Section 2281D and misuse the company's property information or opportunities. It does seem the dog in the manger aspect of the no-profit rule where a director could be obliged to account for a profit made even though the company's property information or opportunities were not exploited really no longer forms part of the Irish law of director's duties. So to recap, the answer to Ashling's question, directors can breach the no-conflict rule in Section 2281F even where they make no personal profit. That said, there can be cases where directors can make a personal profit and not breach their duties where they do not misuse the company's property information or opportunities. So, Tom, many of our listeners will be wondering how they can avoid a conflict of interest arising or where that's not possible, how they can best manage or mitigate the conflict. It's clear that a director should avoid situations where a conflict of interest is likely to occur. Some more obvious examples might include a director being a director of another company which becomes a competitor of or major supplier to their company. However, conflicts of interest are not always so blatant, and there's no definition of conflict of interest, or indeed interest, in the Companies Act. How broadly should these interests be categorised, Tom? Is it confined to financial and commercial interests, or could a director's personal interests potentially result in a conflict? Yes, in many respects, the language used could not be more broad, and interests, as used in Section 2281F, is, for example, much broader than the term material interests as used in the Ethics and Public Office Act 1995. Interests include where directors contract or transact with their company, where directors consider their own remuneration, where directors are employees, but also personal interests giving rise to either what may be termed a negative or a positive bias. So a decision to hire someone who is, for example, a favoured cousin might be an example of a conflict involving a positive bias, whereas a decision to hire a much disliked acquaintance would be a negative bias, as in both cases, the person's actual competency could be a secondary consideration in the director's decision as to whether or not to hire. It's notable that these types of conflicts are rarely, if ever, provided for in constitutions, and the assumption should be that directors must always avoid such conflicts, as usually only the shareholders can release directors from their duty in such cases. And it's worth noting that Section 221F refers to any conflict and not any perceived conflict. And so, Tom, is it only actual conflicts that need to be avoided? Yes, sometimes codes of practice refer to actual or perceived conflicts because failing to avoid a perceived conflict can result in reputational damage for a body. However, it's thought that the duty of company directors under Section 2281F is only to avoid any actual conflicts. It is not always necessary for a director to avoid a conflict. Where the company can foresee particular conflicts arising, it may make specific provision in its constitution or pass a shareholder resolution excusing the director from their duty, which is permitted by Section 228. That's correct, Ashley. Most well-drafted constitutions, and indeed the optional provisions in the Companies Act 2014, 
address conflicts of interest and release directors from many of their strict no conflicts duties. Indeed, this is why the duty in section 228 expressly carves out matters from which a director is released by the company's constitution. The most common example is section 162, two and three of the act, the effect of which is to allow directors to enter into contracts with their companies. Similarly, section 161.7 allows directors to vote on contracts in which they are interested and to be counted in the quorum. Note, however, that where directors do contract with their company, there is a mandatory disclosure provision in the Act, and Section 231 requires directors to disclose any interest they have in a contract to the Board of Directors. And perhaps you could explain for our listeners why that disclosure is necessary, Tom. The reason it's necessary is that other directors are aware that one of their number is conflicted. This is why it's so important for board minutes to note the fact that directors have disclosed their interest in a contract which the meeting has been asked to approve. Even though the constitution might permit the director to be interested in a contract and to vote on that contract, the director will still be required to disclose that interest so that the other directors are made aware of that fact and could theoretically discount the director's exhortations that the company should enter into the contract. The fact that the Act requires the disclosure of contractual interests at board meetings can sometimes cause confusion and can lead people to think that where a director has any conflicting interest, it can be cured by disclosure to the board of directors. In this regard, it's important to note that absent a provision in a constitution to that effect, directors are not permitted to release fellow directors from their conflicts of interest. It is worth noting that directors of certain financial institutions and state bodies are subject to more onerous requirements on conflicts of interest. For example, the Code of Practice for the Governance of State Bodies obliges boards to have procedures in place to deal with conflicts and applies to actual or potential conflicts. The disclosure requirements go beyond contracts to include personal interests. The Central Bank's Corporate Governance Requirements for Credit Institutions require a documented conflicts policy and that conflicts are recorded in the board minutes. Possible conflicts must be considered before making senior appointments and ongoing conflicts may necessitate a change in membership of the board. The central bank does not see disclosure as an appropriate solution and directors may not participate in decision-making or discussion where a reasonably perceived potential conflict of interest exists. So Tom, as we wrap up this section of the podcast, if you were to summarise directors' conflicts of interest for our listeners, what would be the key practical takeaways? Yes, Suzanne. Um, Key takeaways? Well, I think there are five. The statutory duty to avoid conflicts is very broad and far-reaching. There is no need to establish an element of personal profit for the director in order for a conflict to arise, so we need to proceed with caution. Secondly, the duty to avoid conflicts may be relaxed, so you should check the constitution and consider amending it if that's considered appropriate. Thirdly, not all potential conflicts of interest are addressed in constitutions, And there are many examples of conflicts of interest which will not be covered by constitutions and where directors will be obliged to recuse themselves from the board's deliberation of the matter. Fourthly, at each meeting, every director should consider whether a conflict arises and deal with it accordingly. And finally, let's remember that some companies, for example, financial institutions or state bodies, may be subject to an enhanced conflict regime. And it's very important to know when this applies and it really should be covered in the induction of new directors. Thank you, Tom. And thank you for joining us today to share your insights and expertise on this area.
And now moving on to some recent developments over the past few weeks. So Ashling, what's new from a company law and corporate governance perspective? The proxy advisory body, Glass Lewis, has published a report highlighting the most common areas of non-compliance with the UK Corporate Governance Code during the 2020 financial year. The code, which applies on a comply or explain basis, applies via the Irish Annex to Irish incorporated companies with a listing on Euronex Dublin, in addition to those companies with a premium listing on the London Stock Exchange. Glass Lewis identified two provisions of the code which a significant number of companies fail to comply with, opting instead to explain their deviations. The first related to chair tenure. The code recommends that the chair should not remain in the post for longer than nine years, which can be extended for a limited time to facilitate succession planning. This was a new provision added to the code in 2018 and garnered the most attention when it was announced, with some companies believing that it could destabilise well-functioning boards. A common explanation for non-compliance in 2020 was that a temporary extension was necessary to provide stability at a time of disruption, in particular due to the pandemic. Non-compliance with this provision did not result in significant shareholder opposition to the re-election of any director. Glass-Lewis was supportive of extensions beyond the nine-year mark when there was a clearly defined timeline in place for succession. However, it will continue to closely scrutinise company disclosure on this provision in 2021. The second common incidence of non-compliance related to executive pension contribution levels. The code provides that pension contribution rates for executive directors or payments in lieu should be aligned with those available to the workforce. The majority of companies who are not in compliance prior to their 2020 AGMs updated their remuneration policies to comply at the meeting or have outlined an action plan going forward. Glass Lewis indicated that they expect remuneration committees to provide additional disclosure regarding their commitment to reduce the pension contributions for incumbent executives where they are above the majority of the workforce by the end of 2022. A recommendation also made by the Investment Association in its latest principles of remuneration. Suzanne, has there been anything of note from an equity capital markets perspective in the last month? In equity capital markets, developments included the coming into force of the new EU recovery prospectus, which we mentioned in our previous episode. Also in the area of prospectus law, the European Securities Market Supervisory Authority, or ESMA, published updated Q&A in relation to the EU prospectus regulation. There is a new delegated regulation relating to the minimum information to be published for an exemption from the obligation to publish a prospectus in connection with a takeover by means of an exchange offer merger or division. ESMA also published new guidance intended to ensure that market participants have a consistent understanding of the relevant disclosures required regarding the format, content, scrutiny and approval of prospectuses. Staying with EU developments, ESMA published a report containing its advice to the European Commission on Article 8 of the Taxonomy Regulation. By way of background for our listeners, the Taxonomy Regulation came into a force in July of last year and established an EU-wide classification system, or taxonomy, intended to provide businesses and investors with a common language to identify to what degree economic activities can be considered environmentally sustainable. Article 8 of the Taxonomy Regulation requires undertakings that fall within scope of the EU Non-Financial Reporting Directive to include information on how they are associated with environmentally sustainable activities in their non-financial statement. These undertakings are required to disclose three key performance indicators on turnover, 
capital expenditure and operating expenditure related to environmentally sustainable activities. ESMA's recommendations address how these key performance indicators should be calculated, the information that should accompany these disclosures and the methodology for reporting. In the UK, we saw the publication of the report on the UK listing review, which will be of interest to Irish issuers with shares listed on the London Stock Exchange. The recommendations include amending the listing rules to allow dual class share structures and premium listings, reducing free float requirements from 25% to 15%, revising the rules that deter special purpose acquisition companies from listing on the LSE, and a review of the current UK prospectus regime. That concludes this episode in our new series of audio briefings. If you have any questions on anything we discussed today, or if there's any particular issue you would like to hear more about, please feel free to contact Tom, Suzanne or myself, or your usual Arthur Cox contact. We will be back with a new episode next month. In the meantime, thank you for listening and goodbye.